All right, so I'll start here. A director, dramaturge, and teacher, Robert McQueen, has worked across the United States, Canada, and internationally. On Broadway, Robert was the associate director of Mamma Mia and directed the U.S. National, Las Vegas, Mexico City, San Paolo, and Buenos Aires companies of the show. Robert was also the resident director on the national tour of Hal Prince and Susan Stroman's production of Showboat, which I think it was Toronto originally, here. but here for yeah, we opened the theater here. Yeah, we opened the oh Ford the Ford, Center. right? Yeah, yeah. Now called the now Center. Now called the Center. It's a big <laughs> church, I guess, or something. And he was and he was recently awarded the Dora Award for the direction on Life After, and he is in Vancouver right now, about to open Forty Second Street at Theater Under the Stars in Stanley Park, July twelfth. Welcome to From the Pit. Thank you. Uh, I should give a caveat here. Um, Robert and I are both working on the show, and I thought it would be good to meet in the bowl yeah. uh, in Stanley Park. And so we're here, so you may hear some nature in the background. <laughs> Planes flying over. <laughs> Planes. Crows attacking eagles. And so and IATSE people working very hard on stage. <laughs> so we have, uh, um, I'll show some pictures of this uh, later um, in the bowl, but our lovely carp, they're all turning the set around because we do two shows here. Mm. Uh, Cinderella, which had its second preview last night. And we're going to have our second preview tonight. Um, so Robert, mentioned a lot of things there, a dramaturge and teacher and a director, but what I didn't mention is you uh, as an actor. Yes. Well, you know more about that than most. <laughs> well, um, I should have added cabaret star to that, that list too, but don't worry, it'll be released on iTunes very soon. Cabaret acts from the 80s. Um, was it always musical theater? How did you... How did you get into this? I think it was, you know, when I was growing up, it was always music, certainly. Um, I mean, my first uh, the things that I when I was in grade 5 I had this extraordinary music teacher Lloyd Arnson who is still alive and still playing with bands and still gigging and I think he's like 92 or 93 <laughs> years old and he was a force and he taught me to play the cello he taught me to play the piano he taught me to play the xylophone. Like, he would just throw instruments at you. When we're in grade five, like, we're children, he would just throw these instruments in our direction and say, all right, let's get going on this one. Mm. And out of that, there was a, t a group of us, a, a group of students, many of whom actually went on to have careers in music um, in, in various different capacities. Uh, and that sort of sparked my interest. And then in high school, I had two other teachers who were also very influential and kind of would just sort of say, oh, you know what, you need to try that. And so I grew up mostly playing the cello. I played mm. with the Junior Vancouver Symphony for a couple of years, and I studied with Judy Fraser, who was um, in the, in the um, Vancouver Symphony for years and years. Um, and then it was, I was playing in the pit of one of our musicals at high school and, and one of these two teachers I was talking about said, uh, you should come and audition for the show because I've heard you sing. Mm. So, you know, things just kind of unfolded in a very, I didn't, and I knew I, I knew I wanted to be doing this work, but I didn't have like, you know, I wasn't some... 13-year-old with a five-year plan. I was just, things would come along and I would go, yeah, that's a thing that I want to try. So um, 
but there was always music involved. There was always, uh, and then theater joined. Theater became part of that, and then the, really the two of them just ultimately came together. Right. You know. And you went to high school, elementary and high school here. I did. Right. I did both yeah. in West Vancouver. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, we had an amazing theater department at the high school that I went to. Right. And, and you were at West Van. West Van Secondary. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Don Woodworth and and Barry Rector were the two sort of um, lead teachers. Um, and I also had an incredible English teacher named Helen Barr. Hmm who discovered early on and encouraged me to write. So I would write these crazy shows, um, which then we would do as mm. part of, you know, Friday afternoon assembly. I would do, I love do, that. do these variety <laughs> shows. And I would write all the dialogue and I'd get them songs from Ward's Music downtown. Yeah, and crazy. it was fantastic. It was sort of training without training. I, I didn't, <laughs> I was just doing it because I loved it. Yeah. Um, and then I went to theater school here as well. My Initially, I went to theater school here in Vancouver. Right. And, and that was at Studio? Yeah, I went yeah. to Studio 58. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about that was it was not remotely a musical theater. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't a musical theater program, and the focus was almost entirely on text. Which, um, for me, I'm glad I had that because it married so perfectly with what I was already doing, which was singing, not dancing. I was <laughs> never much of a dancer. Um, but the text work was really pivotal to me in understanding how to use language. Um, mm. doing, doing plays scared me because there's always something nice about having music underneath you. It's like a support. You know? yeah. It's like a, you're sort of being carried along. Yeah. Um, and not having that, I always felt a bit sort of naked on stage. Um, but I'm glad I had that training. Right. Yeah. I, I you know, just at this moment, it, it dawned on me how, how similar our, our backgrounds are because we both... Uh, grew up in West Van, mm. and uh, music was sort of the first thing. My father, musician, and uh, but then you know because I didn't know I didn't know that musical theater was a thing, right? You know until right. later on, right? 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 You, know, right? you don't really clue into that as a genre, but you know music is a thing, right? And so it kind of comes full circle. So I see how you mean because music was always around, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember going to the Playhouse when I was a kid. I mean, the one thing I love about my dad that he did, and I don't know, and I don't think he did it consciously, but. If he saw that we liked something, even if he didn't understand it, mm-hmm. he gave it to us. So he would he bought me subscript like a, a season's pass to the Playhouse wow. or to the Arts Club. Now he was not interested. He'd come along because I was you know thirteen. He had to drive me there and <laughs> drive me home. Right. But he would sit there and watch these shows with me, and we never talked about it. I don't think he really knew what to say about it. But he knew. But I was at the edge of my seat watching these things, and he sort of. I mean, one night, one night, he said we were having Sunday dinner, and and he suddenly got up from the table and he said, "All right, get your coat, we're going out." And I said, "Oh, where are we going?" You're good. There's a pianist. I think you need to hear. I think he's really good, and I think you need to hear him. And I'm sitting in Vancouver listening to Arthur Rubinstein play the piano. I'm listening to a concert. Yeah. And of course, I didn't know who it was at the time, right. you know, but I'm sort of again on the edge of my seat watching something very compelling. And my father just knew that that was the stuff that I needed. Wow. That's so insightful. It is. Yeah, it was. He was a complicated man in many ways, but he got that one right. <laughs> right. Short of um, stripping your cello down. Well, he did do hard. that. Yes, that was the other part of him. <laughs> 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 oh my god the horror the horror Jude, poor Judy's face when she came in <laughs> you've ruined the you've ruined this instrument I know I know that's terrible well 
He got it from the other side, so that's great. Yeah, he did. Um, and when you, so you were here to the studio, but what took you away first, or what what happened? I don't know. I remember. I mean, I do remember. I have a I have a very vivid memory of being about five. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, kind of raised me um, in some complicated years, and she was a very kind woman who ran a wool shop over in North Vancouver on Lonsdale, and I would hang out in the little back kitchen area just off the back of the shop, and the television would be on, and I remember watching um, What's My Line. Uh, No, sorry, no, it wasn't What's My Line. It was To Tell the Truth. I was watching To Tell the Truth. And they used to have this little thing that would come up, and it would be a picture of the Empire State Building with a flag, and it would say, "If you want to, if you want to be a guest in our audience, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to sort of little box, New York, New York." And I always remember thinking, "New York, New York. Why is it got? Why is it called the same thing? Like we're not <laughs> Vancouver, Vancouver. Why is it that?" Mm. But as I would watch this every day, I was glued to that program. I loved it, and I and I would think, "I want to go there." I just, there was something about those sparkling people, mm. you know, sitting, being witty, and I didn't know what they were being witty <laughs> about, but I knew they were being witty and smoking cigarettes and sort of having a wonderful time. And I thought, oh my God, that looks like so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh so I think that I just logged in somehow that I wanted to go there. And then when I graduated from studio, I really wasn't very good. I was, you know, I knew I, but at least I knew I wasn't very good. Like, that's one good thing. And I remember saying to Catherine Shaw, who is my wonderful teacher and mentor and now great friend, and saying to Catherine, I know I'm not very good, but I think I can get better. And she said, yeah, you just need to go away and grow up. You're very young. And so she said, I think you should just go away and then go to New York and take, take classes for a year. And I did. And I followed her advice. I jumped in my little Volkswagen car and I drove across the country to Kent to Toronto and then moved to New York and loved it. I loved being there. And what did you take there? Where, what were you studying? I studied at HB, Herbert Berghoff Studio, which of course was, um, you know, one of the main schools at the time. There was Stella Adler and the Neighborhood Playhouse and there was HB, which was Herbert and Uda. And, um, and I did a lot of, I, I did, I did a, an amazing acting study with Carol Rosenfeld who, again, is a teacher and a mentor and a dear friend now. And I studied with all kinds of people. They had all these amazing... Rita Gardner, who is the original Louisa in The Fantastics, taught right. this class, and I studied with her. Mm. I studied with, you know, Helen Gallagher, who who is still alive and, you know, won her first Tony Award in 1953 or something crazy. Amazing people. And so I just... It was like stepping in... You know, the thing about New York is that it's this extraordinary resource. You have all these people that are there and all these things that are going on. Less so now that it's kind of turned into the real estate capital of the world, but back then when people were scared of it, it was a really great city to study in because there were lots of artists doing things, just doing stuff. And we would go see cabarets. We, I, I think I've told you this. We second acted it to every show on Broadway, you know, because we couldn't afford the tickets. So we'd <laughs> right. just go see the sneak in for the second act. Amazing. We saw everything. And I'm, I feel so lucky to have had that at a very formative time in my life because it really, again, I wasn't thinking about it. I was gaining a perspective on things or I was gaining an understanding or experience of things. And, you know, my teachers then were people like Word Baker, who was directing shows. So he would, I'd be in his class and he'd say, hey, what are you doing next Thursday and Friday? Do you want to come and be a reader? 
where I'm auditioning for this new workshop. And then I'd be reading opposite all of the people who at that time were the were the were the current contemporary musical theater stars and reading opposite them auditioning you know having them come in an audition and 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 seeing what worked and what didn't work and that people were scared and people were brave and I, I I it was thrilling it was thrilling to have had that wow yeah and without dating yourself we're, we're talking sort of uh, <laughs> later 70s early 80s no 80s, right? 80s I moved yeah. there I, it was early 80s yeah. yeah I moved there in the early 80s and uh, it was still a dangerous place it York, was right? still a dangerous place yeah. it was kind of coming to the end of it I mean the Reagan administration sort of killed all you know, creativity in the country or tried to um, um, but the, the 70s the 60s and 70s I think were the really the real upheaval time in New York right. the 70s being the most storied time there where it was really really was crazy dangerous and you know and but there were also hundreds of little off-Broadway houses and people could just try things and do things and uh, it didn't cost a million dollars to you know get a show up and going you could just do it and we did it all the time right because know? there was a few quite a few empty theaters around too oh, yes. right because it was yes. that time. and we were using we're like I remember doing a production of Jerome Kern's musical Sally I was in this yes. crazy production and we did it on the on the third floor of a building on 14th West 14th that was just this big warehouse space and we basically they just converted it into a theater they just set up some chairs got some risers set up some chairs we had a set and we did this thing and it was really it was terrific it was really right. a lovely production, really good director. I can't remember his name. Very, very good guy. And none of us got paid, but we were doing, we were having these amazing experiences and, and learning our craft, you know, and learning about musical theater. Tell me a little bit about musical stage. Now, I know this is this is something that is partly, I mean, it's it's uh, work for you, but it's also passionate. It's something that you're passionate about. Uh, can you tell me a little bit how you got involved with them? And just so people know, it's a, it's a Toronto-based company. Mitchell Marcus uh, founded. It was originally called Acting Acting Up Stage Company. That's yeah. right. And they recently changed their name. So, how did you get involved with them? Well, it was actually my agent, Bruce Dean, who back in late 2009, because I'd heard about the company. I was not living in Toronto at the time. I was I had moved back to New York. And um, Bruce rang me up one day and he said, hey, there's this young guy and he started this theater company and, you know, he does the kind of shows that you like, like, you know, small cast, slightly odd musicals. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, thank you. I think, yeah, great. So he said, I think you guys should meet. And I'd already heard things, you know, uh, actors that I knew around who'd worked with him and really admired him and admired his 
his integrity and his intelligence as a producer. He's a real producer. He's the real deal. And so Bruce set up a creative blind date between us where we had coffee one afternoon and we started talking about Light in the Piazza, which I had seen. I had not... I. Uh, no, I did see it in New York. I did. But the production I really loved was the was the smaller version of it that I saw when they first did it at um, the Intamon Theater in Seattle mm. several years before it moved came into New York. And I loved the intimacy of that production. I loved the orchestration, which was for five musicians. Um, so we talked about that. And then, uh, you know, a month or two later, he offered it to me. He said, would you come and do this? Would you direct this? And that's what started us. That was in, we did that in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, initially, it really was about choosing the material, the best of the small, intimate musicals, contemporary musicals. Um, and then at a certain point, we both realized that we were going to run out of that material pretty quickly because it's, you know, they, they're not cranking them out. They're not being written every day, those shows. Um, the Caroline or Change or, you know, Falsettos or Light in the Piazza, those things that are, that have that, uh, uh, that very specific um, kind of aesthetic that Mitchell and I are both so attracted to. Uh, so that was what led to Noteworthy, which was um, us beginning to to look at how to commission writers, how to get Canadian writers commission fees to start generating new material. Mm-hmm. And that's really become a focus of the company over the last, I would say, five years, four or five years. Like, that's, that's really what we're aiming at now. Um, and... And with the intent to be able to do one new Canadian musical every season. Um, And part of that, because I've been living in the United States, part of what my tasks have been uh, is I've been meeting as many theatre company directors, artistic directors, producers in the U.S., creating a bridge between what we're doing in Toronto and opportunities in America because it's just such a big market and there's so much more money and there's so much, you know, there's more possibility. There's just a bigger population of people doing stuff. And so for us to be able to say to a writer, you know, it's it's a hard thing. If a writer spends five years writing a musical and it gets done once, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've had their they've had their commission fee and then they've had some other royalty fee paid to them. It's not a huge amount of money over five years. It's not sustainable. But if we can introduce them into a larger market, that might mean they get several productions done at regionally in America or, you know, who knows where it might go, that at least it starts creating a livelihood for for Canadian writers um, to keep working and to stay interested in, in doing this. That's great. Yeah. And I know that there was a recent, um, Robert also directed a, um, a, a very well-respected version of Fun Home that mm-hmm. just, uh, uh, I guess, recently closed, maybe about a month ago or so yeah. now yeah. Uh, in Toronto. Um, also, but there's a connection with Mervish there too, right? Yeah. That they've just started. So they're they're helping out a little bit with using some of their engine to yes. help out with that. Right? Yes. Can, oh, here goes one of those uh, yes. planes. Uh, welcome to, uh, well, welcome <laughs> welcome to, Vancouver. to the bowl. Uh, the planes fly right overhead the sea they planes, do. but it's it's it's, it's kind of great actually. It's sort of like it's like the war. Know, I know it is a bit like the war. Sort of you know, Amelia Earhart is buzzing the theater. Um, yeah, the Mervishes very generously came on board this year, or it really I think had to do with Fun Home with the material once. 
And Mitchell really was leading this aspect of it, obviously, as the producer. But <clears throat> he was able to create a, a relationship between our company, which is really very small, and the Mervishes, which is really very large. Um, and they gave us space in their smallest theater. Um, and But with that came their subscription. And, mm. you know, it's called the Off Mervish series. So it's three shows that they do in that smaller theater that they market as a package of tickets you can get. You know, you can buy all three. Um, and so it's for people who, you know, if they go to New York, might go to the public or might go to the, one of the smaller houses at Lincoln Center or something like that, are looking for a, a slightly perhaps different, you know, Playwrights Horizon. They're looking for a different experience of theater. Uh, and we, it, you know, in one, in one moment went from playing in the beautiful, and I love this, I love the Berkeley space in Toronto, which is one of the Canadian stage theaters. That's usually where we work. But we went from that house to a 700-seat house, which was more than twice the size, um, and we filled it. We did very mm. well because we had that, as you say, the engine of the Mervishes yeah. um, connected. That's great. Do you see that sort of as an ongoing thing? Or a, uh, I think so. Hopefully. You know, who knows? Things evolve, and, yeah. and, uh, but it's, there's certainly a commitment for next season. Great. Uh, one of the shows is going back in there again, and I, I, I think that the Mervises were very pleased with the result and with okay. the ticket sale result and with the success, the artistic success of the material. Um, and it's, it's sort of very different from anything they do. They do a lot of musicals, but they do big touring productions generally or sit down of large commercial pieces. So it's a nice, I think it's also a nice blend just for their sort of brand to yeah. give it a word um what do you think there was a uh an effort to to try and uh, help out a uh, local company to to help you know create some community there is yeah sure think? i think there is you know they um they've been doing this for a long time this they they would often bring shows in and put them into say the alex if they had a period of time They'd bring a show around from, you know, the Shaw Festival or from Stratford or something. They've been doing that for years. This is this is a more formal version of that where it's smaller companies that are satelliting in the city itself having a chance to do one of their pieces in a larger venue. Um, and there are several. There 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 is one other company that's been there pretty consistently with them for several seasons now doing that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a nice part of the sort of ecology of the city that that exists. That's great. I, it's, it's fantastic of them to do that. Um, we were talking. I was mentioning some of this interview to be something about adapting works. You mm. know, it's something that I know you you have some passion about doing as a dramaturge. Also, um, one of my passions is to try and think of larger works in a smaller scale. Um, is that something you've done a lot of before? Have you done that? Have you done that? I did. And again, it was sort of by force because the first place I consistently started directing was at my old theater school here in Vancouver, Studio 58. And Catherine Shaw called me up one day. I, you know, I really had no, I'd never really thought about directing. And it was Catherine who sort of opened that door for me mm. by asking me to direct something. Um, and we did a musical but, you know, the, the space at Studio Fit was like 90 seats or something. Like, it's a tiny theater. It's in a basement. It's got a pillar in the middle of the playing space. Yeah. Like, there's all kinds of interesting, you know, opportunities and challenges with that space. 
But in that space, we did, you know, cabaret, you know, we did hair, we did uh, The Cradle Will Rock, I was pal Joey. I was able to do all these shows that I really love. A nymph errant, this yeah, you know, errant. nymph errant. Yeah. Whoever does that piece, you know, <laughs> uh, and we were able to to do those shows in this very very intimate theater. And by force, everything had to get pulled down because, for the most part, they were done on larger stages, like. Uh, yeah, for the most part, they had had larger productions originally. So there was a... I didn't even think about it as a challenge, really. I just went, oh, here's the stage, and here's the show, and here's the cast. And there's also a finite number of people, because usually you'd have 16, maybe, to work with, 16 students. Um, but I think it, without me, again, consciously doing that, I started looking at... Dramaturgy sort of came as a sidebar to just looking at how to fit how to put that show into that environment and what and what was important in the narrative if we did have to cut something which we did occasionally no one should know that but we did um you know if we did have to cut or read or re, sort of reorganize something uh, it was really based on necessity yeah um but then the process of doing it was what's essential what's essential in this story what character might be disappear you know what character can you cut and not actually lose anything from the narrative right um so it was that kind of process that i think sort of opened the door initially and for the listeners that have listened in the first season we did a um uh an interview with David Hutchins and um, Catherine Shaw came in and we talked about theater in small spaces because of the studio space. So there are some photos on the website where you can see the space with a few uh, shots of how interesting that pillar is in the middle of the room. Um, <laughs> but it really does create a creative... Um, you have to be very creative. You do. It's just, I think work. it's a strength. I think it it's is. a strength. I mm. think it's wonderful to be able to try to figure out how to make something fit into that space. Actually, David Hudgens was in one of the shows I did. She yeah. Loves Me. Right, right. He played Arpad. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, he was terrific. Um, uh, and that, again, was a big show. Like, how do we put that into this tiny, tiny little environment exactly. and make it work and make the story clear to the audience? Um, but I think, you know, the interesting thing that you and I've talked about over these past weeks is taking larger musicals and not just putting them into small spaces, but also, you know, the challenge with a lot of musicals is that they have a finite shelf life, largely because of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you look at something like Annie Get Your Gun, it's an exquisite score. It's one of the best scores he wrote. Yeah, in such an interesting way that came around. Yes. Because it wasn't supposed to be Irving Berlin at he, all writing Right, that that's right. And then it, he did. He knocked off like three songs in a week. and was like, what do you think about this? Yeah. And they were like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And they were writing yeah. it of the time, but it. currently it's a hard piece for people to, people will push back against the story for various reasons. Whether or not one agrees with that is another thing, because I've had huge arguments with people. Like people, somebody actually said to me one day, oh, yes, yeah, South Pacific, nobody can do that anymore because it's racist. And I said, N no, it's actually about racism. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and, and a friend of mine who is Asian American just played Bloody Mary. And at a big production in the Midwest, at one of the big regionals in the Midwest, and had a wonderful time because she and the director really worked through 
how to play that role now without making it something that isn't... And for her, you know, as an Asian-American woman, she was not about to try to... You know, she, she had very clear parameters of what... But they were able to work within the material because it's very superior material. Yeah, oh, you know? oh it is. Um, yeah. But it, the interesting thing is there are, there are shows that get lost because of the book and because of sort of the nature of the book. And, you know, so is it possible or should one even try to rework something to make it fit a contemporary audience? I don't, you know. Well, you know... <sighs> I often call it the carousel problem in a way in my in my brain because it's the same sort of thing. Uh, there's so many problems with that, you know, book about domestic, you know, violence and there's lots going on. But now there's a successful successful production of it running it right now, right, uh, on Broadway uh, and wherever I think it's running, and um, you don't hear much of that at all. No. So they must have done something to it, you know. They, they must have thought through it. I think they do. I think it really has to do with the thinking through because there was also not so long ago another production that was done of Carousel that didn't have that success and what I heard mostly from some of the people who were in it was that there was no conversation around any of that. So you had actors, contemporary actors looking at an historic piece that has very challenging Real, it has a very challenging real issue in it, but that it was not part of the dialogue in the room. Mm. And so, as actors, it was like, How am I supposed to play this? I don't know, I don't know what the context of this is, I don't know what this is. And I, you know, Jack O'Brien is an incredibly good actor, a good director, rather. And so, I'm sure that part of this production that you're talking about, this current uh, commercial production. That would have been uh, that would have been a major piece of their discussion, um, right? You know. Um, well, what's nice about that is the the reviews or the critique I have of it. They purely just critique the piece without this interjection. It, does, it seems like they they've either dealt with it or it, it isn't an issue. Completely. And I think if we're going to sustain shows from the past, it's important to look at them with a fresh completely view. Uh, but not just not just dismiss them like like your friend with South, South Pacific. Yeah, I mean it won the Pulitzer for God's sake. I know. Sake. I mean it it was really uh, it's an important piece. Uh, but to have a conversation about it, to have a conversation about it, and also to read it. Like I'm sure that person hadn't actually ever read South Pacific, right? Where you have a character who sings a song about being carefully taught mm. to be racist. Like you actually have a character. You have two American characters acknowledging for the first time young people in that scenario, in that setting, in that time period, recognizing something that they didn't know about themselves. Uh, and until they're in literally a foreign country dealing with things that are foreign to them, did they bump into it? Um, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein were always writing that in their material. They were always stepping into complicated... And they wrote wildly successful commercial material. So they did something sort of almost impossible. <laughs> like they That's sort right. of took political, social issues and made them and, and turned it into successful theater. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to. Be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made. 
and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. And I've said this before uh, on this program and to many people, and it's, it's not that Hammerstein doesn't get the recognition he deserves, which he does as a lyricist, but as a book writer. Mm. I think that's where his strength lay in a lot of ways. I mean, his lyrics, obviously, his... his um, Simplicity, his way of conveying a story in a simple way, but his book writing was almost flawless. I mean, he could make something really efficient. The dialogue is really, really good. Uh, the point, he was very good at that. He was that's very good at that. And that's, you know, that's so often the thing that happens, isn't it? That the book writers sort of you know, get get ignored. Everyone goes to hear the new Sondheim piece, and they have no idea who's written the book, you know, <laughs> right. you know and... and uh, I mean, that's not entirely true. Obviously, a lot of people do. But for the most part, a general audience is really um, captured by the composition or by the, by the you know, whoever's writing it. Um, but if you, and it, it's that old story, which I think is true, or that old saying that if you don't have a really solid book, your musical's going to be in trouble. And, and often people can't figure out why, you know, because the book is tricky it's tricky to figure out how to make one of those things work you know yeah yeah um i know that lisa crone who wrote uh fun home i think which i think was her was her first musical said it was the hardest thing she ever did and she's a prolific playwright you know yeah. and and she said it just took forever to figure out like how these component parts went together and what the through line of it needed to be and what the how spare it needed to be in order to convey um, and it was like a five-year process for her, um, and not and a very difficult one, but an incredibly satisfying one. Once they had, because it changed, that piece changed between its off-Broadway and its commercial run. They rewrote. They continued to rework it. Right. You know. So maybe we can talk a little bit about Forty Second Street because yeah. this is a little bit of a similar thing. I mean, we you know, for people that don't know Theater of the Stars, I mean, it's not a small house, and we have about I don't know. 1400 seats here that I can see out in front of me. Um, it's a big outdoor venue. But again, we're dealing with a piece that was written in 1980 yeah. that was a throwback to shows of the 1930s. Yeah. So we're already dealing with like a double layer of um, interesting changes yeah. that have come along the way. <laughs> a lot of pastiche and yeah. uh, time and situations. But, you know, we've, we've relooked at the piece a bit just from an acting point of view and from a book. Um, how did you come in approaching this? Um, well, I, I, you know, when I f was first having a conversation a year ago with the management here, I went and I, I knew the material a, a little bit. I think the first thing I did was I just listened to the score again, just to reacquaint myself. And then they sent me the script, which I read. And then I went back to the source material, which was the film. And of course, there's, you know, various versions of that. One of our cast members actually found a draft of a screenplay that was one of the first drafts of the screenplay, I think, or an early draft. It's published anyway, which is quite different from what they wound up with in the film. Um, and, you know, that one, some of the things I loved was that the, because the film was pre-Hayes Code, I always, I really loved that kind of filmmaking because it was sort of without moral boundary. You know, <laughs> they weren't, they, they didn't have yeah. all those stupid rules that the, Hay, the, the Hayes Code set up. 
um, in order to keep keep America moral, you know. Um, and so there was a kind of freedom of expression in it, which felt very authentic to me, and language and use of language and way that people would relate to each other. Um, and then, but then going to re- really stepping into the material, I was struck by the way that the women are portrayed in this 1980s version, which I thought was a kind of time capsule, really. It was a sort of time capsule of that period as well. Um, it It was an adaptation of an earlier film, but it still was very representative of something from its period. And, uh, it just felt it just felt off. It just felt like because you know then you think about then you go back to those early films in the 1930s and even later even after Hayes came in, you know films like The Women, you know films um, um, what's the what's the um, Stage Door, which. Um, is an astounding movie when you watch how women at that time were maneuvering. I mean, it's got all those typical things. The producer who creates a fake family so that he can seduce these girls but not get involved with them and how Catherine Hepburn sees right through it. And, you know, all these women are, like, totally on to what this guy's about. Um, And these women are empowered. Like, these are strong women who are doing what they want to do at a time in the early 1930s during a depression when they weren't doing, you know, what was expected of them. They weren't getting married. Lucille Ball's character eventually does. She marries a guy from Seattle in logging or something and moves back there. You know, but there are... But I love that movie when I first saw it eons ago when I was a kid. I was struck so much by by not only the showbiz quality of it and the sort of theater quality of it but uh, an aspect of it but um so that was what i was holding i think when i started looking at this piece uh, was how to completely honor the production and the intent of the production but also to strengthen the women's choices in this piece or to strengthen the autonomy that these women are to strengthen who they are as characters um, so that they're not victim to men and sort of only playing into the hand of a man you know Mm -hmm. that there's a balance particularly in the relationship between Peggy and Julian Julian's the director and you know in, in my reading but reading through the Direct stage directions in the 1980s version. He's a complete misogynist. You know, he just sort of right. treats Peggy like an object <laughs> yeah. uh, for, for what he needs of her in that moment, as opposed to him recognizing something extraordinary in her, an ability and a and a humanity, a kind of who she comes, what she comes as as a person, and being extremely drawn to that and unable to cross the line, unable to really express that except in one moment where accidentally he sort of reveals himself, reveals his feelings and immediately shuts it back down again. Um, and then at the end, the nice little turnaround is that, you know, he's going to go to the kids' party, uh, the celebration on the opening night, and, and and she wants him to be there. So you go, oh, well, the door is open to who what this relationship might become, but... But it's the two of them arriving in a place together, um, as opposed right. to him holding all the cards. A power you know, shift. It, idea. Pa- power shift. It's yeah. just a balanced relationship yeah. where she knows who she is and what she can do and what she brings to her work and to this relationship. And she also understands him. I think she sees the taciturn, the sort of darkness of him, the kind of unhappiness of him. 
um, you know, which is a wonderful thing for somebody to be able to actually just see what some, who somebody is and not go, Oh, that needs to, Oh, I don't like that. Or that needs to change. Or, you know, they just get right. it. And it's like, Oh, that's who they are. Okay. I got it. Great. You know, And Dorothy Brock, who's the sort of the, is typically played quite differently. Completely. You know. She's often played as a kind of, and again, what's suggested in the stage directions is she's a bit of a buffoon. She can't dance. You know, she can't, she can't, she can't, she can't. They keep sort of talking about what she can't do. And I think, well, then why is she such an event? Like, why, is they, why did they hire her? Yeah. Like, if she's such a, if she, why, you know, does it only have to do with the fact that she's bringing this money um, this investment, but I loved the idea that Dorothy Brock is somebody of substance who had had a huge career and is making and wants to come back and wants to, you know, see what's still there for her. Um, it's just more interesting as a character than somebody who's, a, you know, a, can't do a time step and can barely hold a tune. <laughs> and you know we. We didn't do we don't we didn't do a lot with uh, you know changing a lot um, you know as far as script goes it's quite minimal if anything um, which brings me to how you are as an educator and and with your actors um, one thing that I've experienced a lot in the room is making sure that we are on intention all right. the time right so what stands out for you when you approach a piece like this how do you approach your actors where do you, where do you start with them it I mean for me it. It always, always comes back to what is the story being told? What is the narrative? Which then, going back further, comes down to what was the writer's intent? Like, what story did the writer want, or writers want to tell? What, what are the themes? What are the ideas? What's the... And, you know, sometimes they're, if they're, you know, they may be gone. They may be dead. And so you can research. You can try to find material interviews you know great there are great library resources where you can find things like that um which is always very helpful but then you know it's like what did the writers want this to be and how can we try to reveal that the danger sometimes less so with musical theater because it's a bit more sort of linear and literal but i know that often with opera opera production you know Opera can get treated like a found object by the director um, who just goes, well, I don't really care what the original intent is or what the Mm. narrative is. This is my conceit. And it gets lacquered onto the top of this piece. And so the audience is just left in complete confusion (laughs) because they're watching and listening to one thing. And and, But what's presented to them in terms of design and staging and narrative is so opposite to that. and so always in the room, it, regardless of what the material is, it's what is the story, what's our point of, what's our, what's our departure point with this story, what's our point of view with this story, what do we want the audience to take away from, with, from this story, to, go, to leave the theater with. And that always comes down to 
the basics of acting. It's literally what is the intention of this character and what are they doing to get what they want. Because that's when it starts to reveal. When you start really looking at intention, there's all kinds of subtleties that start to emerge within that. And what people do to get what they want, it starts to reveal kind of subtext within material that allows characters to have duality that allows characters to be saying one thing but really meaning something almost entirely different or you know to be covert about there's all kinds of interesting gray areas that start entering into the humanity of characters and I think often what happens in musical theater is it is treated very literally productions are treated very literally it's on the page this is what this says so that's what this means as opposed to what's beneath the beneath the beneath That's what interests me about that, is that you can have a tiny moment between two characters where there's a look between them or a touch or something that says, gives the audience a whole new insight, gives them a whole, opens a door that's not actually on the page. Um, and that's when it starts getting interesting to me. It's and and still honoring what the story is and who these characters are, but just kind of cracking open their inner world and sort of who they what you know what it is ultimately that they're really pursuing through this piece. Right. And we didn't tend to bog the we we haven't bogged the show down with a lot of um, proppy things, and right. Set things. Right. It's very story driven. Right. And have you found that sort of. I don't know, more of your focus in the last totally. little while? Yeah. Totally. I yeah. mean, please just give me a bare stage with three chairs. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, totally. truly, it's like I, <clears throat> you know, the, I, there is that we've gone through a period in the theater. First of all, nobody can afford to do that anymore. <laughs> right, you know? yeah. So, but I remember sitting in all those big British blockbusters back in the 80s and 90s and just being bored out of my skull because I didn't care that the chandelier, it looked stupid anyway let's be honest that chandelier never fell in a very authentic looking way it sort of went clunk 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 and yeah. you know you could see some crew person and i just thought oh god why are we doing that like yeah, right. what has that got to do with anything other than we can afford to do it and it's you know or helicopters arriving or you know all those things to me feel like they clutter the stage up and that they are that they're a kind of way of trying to. I, I don't know what. I don't know what it is. It. it I, I, as an audience member, I thought I don't need to be told. I don't need to be handed this. I have a really good imagination. I think it's why I always loved radio plays when I was a kid because mm. all I was listening to was the story. I loved them. CBC they used to do those great radio plays. Yeah. BBC still does them so to great. some degree, and I loved that because my imagination. They just. I was left alone yeah. to come up with my own idea. I wasn't being spoon fed. It's a little bit about what the actual definition of theatricality means. Right. Like, what does that mean? Right. And I think, yeah, I, I agree completely. I mean, that's why books are still very popular. Yeah. You know, they haven't gone anywhere. Because yeah. I think there was a time period, I think, when we had a crossover where we thought theater, you know, was dying, you know, as it always is, um, <laughs> where we couldn't keep up with movies, you know. So they thought, well, what we need to do is, you know, we need to be a little bit more like the movies. Right, you know? right, right. Uh, and that will bring the people back in. Um, but we underestimated our audiences. Totally, totally. You know, I have we have done some projects at musical stage in the last couple of years, and the ones that I have I have loved the most, like the thing that we did two two and a half years ago, we did three twenty twenty minute musicals, three twenty minute musicals at the Art Gallery of Ontario in one of their galleries 
three the three musicals based on three of the paintings that were on the wall and there was nothing like we had some chairs we had some music stands for the singers um, we had a we had a trunk travel trunk that some s- small pieces came out of it didn't need anything you and and I've actually done one of those pieces I did in a symposium where we just had the singers at the music stands because they had a four-hour rehearsal and the audience was enraptured they were listening and listening and stepping inside and this was superior composition there was something about this young woman's composition that is to me very astounding that is able to really reach into people's hearts and kind of grab a hold of them and um, but that, to me, is the most successful kind of theater because it's it's trusting the audience to come in and participate rather than be spectators. And I'm not interested when I go to the theater in being a spectator, and I'm not interested in people who that's what they want. If that's what they want, excellent. Go find it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> um, a last couple of things. Um, I know you like master classes or you, you do that sort of work in there. What... Have you always been one that wanted to give back yeah. educationally? Or where did that come from? I don't, yeah, I've never really thought about it as giving back. I mean, I know that that is uh, maybe... I just love teaching. Um, I loved my teachers. I loved and I got who my... I, the ones who were good, I got it at the time that I was studying with them. I understood that they were good. I didn't know why sometimes, but I knew. And I knew what difference they made in my life. And this is going all the way back, like I was saying, all the way back to Lloyd Arnson in grade five, you yeah. know, um, and my and Helen Barr in high school. And uh, those teachers really do change a life. They really do change the course of, of a young person's life. And I'm also, I guess... You know, it's a hard thing. Theater education is a tricky thing because you're sort of aware, and this is a conversation that happens in every faculty that I have anything to do with, even if I'm just going in for a day, you know, having discussion with some of the teachers. There's always uh, there's always a, a concern or a, a recognition of the fact that um, there's massive unemployment out there and we've got all these students and, you know, how many of them are actually going to find active employment in this industry and I always think that's not the point. You know, if, if you've got a class of 15 and one of them actually continues and does well, the other 14 have had an education that is about training the artist. Mm. And that is invaluable because if you, train, if you train young people as artists, regardless of what they go to do, like Donald Trump should have been trained as an artist. <laughs> we might have avoided some of the trouble yeah, right. we're in. Yeah. You know, but to train people to be perceptive and be receptive and to be sensitive to and to be able to hear and listen and look. How do we look? How do we listen? Those are the key things to me. Um, and that's, I think, what compels me to teach is to is to dig into that whether or not somebody has a successful career is who knows you know well it, it, the, a theater career can um, or education can apply to so many things completely I mean it's not completely. independent of itself completely um, you know I have this fight with a, not a fight that's not a good way to put it but I have this argument with a lot of theater people because I'm a big sports fan yeah 
And um, often you get the, the two sides where they're like, well, no, no, I, you know, oh, sporting, you know, what is that? You know, you hear this a lot. <laughs> and I say, okay, well, you know, there's nothing more dramatic or um, uh, theater-like yeah. than if you ever watch a final putt on the fourth day yeah. of, a, of a golf tournament. Yeah. Uh, it's palpable. Yeah. And it's theater. Yeah. It is theatrical. Yeah. And that's the reason we televise it. Yeah. If it wasn't exciting, we wouldn't do that. Right. And I just think that people tend to just want to separate those things. But it's all the same. Yeah. Politics is also the same. Yeah, totally. It's a show. Totally. It? It's a I show. Mean, even the more first, now. The first Pulitzer Prize winning musical of The I Sing right. is about that. Right, 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 right. right. Also, oddly, about a celebrity chosen to run for president. Right. Democrat, I believe. No, right, <laughs> so right, the other right, way around. But right. it, it's, there's a reason that he was good at what he did. It's interesting how life is always imitating Completely. Art, or the other way around, you know, and here we are. Yeah, it's, um, it's essential work, you know, to... I, if I didn't have those five people over the course of my younger years be part of my life... I'm not sure I would be, I, well, I know for a fact I wouldn't be doing this anymore. I would have wandered away from it a long time ago. But it was those trigger moments where part of you catches fire because of something a teacher says or something, an experience you have in a class or how you fail in a class at something, but you keep trying and, and you're, building, uh, you're building something inside of yourself that's not academic. It's not. It's not about learning in the way that we think about learning. But it's about the force in the room and how it cracks things open for you. Um, you know, because people will often say, you know, what method do you use when you teach? And I think I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what method I use. Yeah. I, I studied with all these teachers, and they all taught me what they taught me. And some of the was method, a method, a way of working, and that was fine. But that's not what I'm, I'm not teaching them skills. The skills come as a, as a part of, but they're not the focus of. Do you, um, as far as education goes, for if an actor, a young actor comes to you and says, what, what should I do? What should, uh, do you have any advice for them? What like to go into education? Oh, to go into education. Yeah, do you think they oh, should? Is that something? That's no, important? I think they will if they're going to. You know, okay. I think people will if they, if they are. Do you mean to become educators themselves? Oh no, or, I mean, if, like, do you think it's important to go toward acting schooling or? To, oh, oh to yes. Oh, I see. Yes, yes. yes. Um, I do. I do. I do. I think it's a chance. I think it's a chance to. I. I. I think what you go in with. You know, you're not going to go in with nothing and come out being Meryl Streep. I mean, yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, but it, whatever you go in, whatever the raw source is, whatever your whatever your compulsion is, whatever your drive is, being in a theater school for a couple of years gives you a discipline. It contextualizes it. It gives you a lot of information. It gives you practical, you know, if you're in voice class, you are gaining practical material. You're learning how to use the instrument. You're learning how to use the body. Um, you're learning how to relate to things around you that's all a huge part of the the thing about making people sensitive to their environment and sensitive to material to script to music mm. that's essential it it doesn't end when you graduate it really that gives you the foundation and then from there it's up to you to continue to study or continue to seek out or or find your way to the experiences and the mentors and the and the 
um, opportunities. Uh, but I do think it's I do think it's um, a really essential thing for people to do. Right. Yeah. Um, as this is from the pit, uh, <laughs> it's it's good to talk. It's something that I I noticed from from Robert uh, early on um, working with him is that he has a, a keen ear for the music uh, to uh, inform. Uh, what's happening and it's something that I don't get from every director right uh, obviously knowing your musical past now helps with that but he, he how do you find obviously with musical theater that's important but you you seem to see, seem to have it as an importance when you direct oh completely yeah completely uh, it's like a it's just a feeling of it's a feeling of how a piece moves, how a piece, what's compelling a piece. It's sort of like if I look at material, I think about it in dynamics, not literally. Like I don't right. go, this is pianissimo, and it's a forte, <clears throat> but that's the feeling of it. Right. You know, that's the feeling of what's moving this language along or what's driving this scene, what's driving the rhythm of this scene. Um, <clears throat> and that certainly comes from my experience of being a musician and studying music when I was younger is understanding dynamics and mm. the importance of dynamics, the dynamic as an, as an integral part of telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when I'm, it's just, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how to define it really. It's like when I'm, when I'm listening to something, it's like, you know, you, you, you do the same thing. You just, you, I mean, you probably have, you have a much more grounded, um, actual technical knowledge of it. I just listen to something and I go, oh, that's not, that's right, or that's not right, or this can be there, or this is, you know, it's like you just have a sense of how music, what part music plays in this, right. you know? And, and truthfully, it's, it's like I just feel it, it it's, it's sort of like a thing kind of in my belly that you just feel, like you just know when something is, a piece of music is right, you mm. know? Um, well, yeah. I can explain it a bit uh, from when I experienced the absence of that is more of is where it becomes very, because I've worked with lots of directors. They're all lovely people. A lot of, you know, they do their best, but they don't always, uh, they do, they see a little bit of the music as an obstacle right. sometimes right. as opposed to being part of the, right. the text or part of the story. You know, totally. So it's, it's appreciated is what I'm saying. Right. So it's nice to know that you care, you look at, the, you care about the score, the underscoring, right. what's happening in those moments. So. Right. Because yeah, they're essential. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the underscoring is part of the narrative. It's essential. It's a, that's a huge piece. And with new material, that's a big part of a conversation with an orchestrator is, you know, and with the writers is what is, what's, what's necessary here. What's going to be useful is either a bridge or, or to carry under or when does it need to just be silent and just let these characters speak and you know because you can also overdo all of that and have too much of it and so again it's just a feeling of the world of the material i agree (laughs) um just before we end um tell me what's what's next for you what's what are you doing next? um well there's a couple of things coming up i've got a few little projects going on um a lot of the focus for me in the next little while is going to be specific to the work that we're doing at Musical Stage Company. We've got some initiatives that are coming around. We've got some commissions that are underway. We've got a workshop that I'm going to be doing um, in the fall with two of two of our writers, a piece that we've commissioned. Um, so I feel like... Uh, yeah, it's a funny thing. I don't... 
I've recognized recently that I have almost no personal ambition for directing, but I have massive ambition to direct material that excites me. So, you know, if there's material that I'm not that interested in for whatever reason, I have, I, there's no part of me that thinks, oh, I should do this because, or, oh, I want to do this because it's me directing. Mm-hmm. I could care less about that. <laughs> I'm not really that interested in that. But when the piece comes along and it's the right piece and it's exciting to me, then, then that's the focus. It's the material itself. So that's really the thing right now for me is, is trying to create as many opportunities for, for writers to be able to flourish in that, to create that kind of work, you know? Okay. Yeah. What are you the most proud of up to this point? In the in my work in your, in your life in, in your my work, life yeah. oh gosh gee it can be work if you want to make it that way um, it's an open ended question <laughs> I don't know I guess yeah there's sort of different pieces of that I think certainly you know ten years ago I directed a piece in Cambodia and um, and I had spent some years prior to that working with the one of the writers is is Cambodian is Khmer. And uh, I spent a lot of time in and out of the country. And uh, as a result of that experience, I have an adopted son in Cambodia who is a young filmmaker and is making his way in the sort of burgeoning industry that's opening up again as, as Phnom Penh um, kind of, you know, finds its way back uh, from recent history. And certainly the... Oh, you can hear the tapping yeah, over there. Uh, and certainly... Um, I never thought that would happen. I never thought that I would be a father. But it's, I, I realized early out, I thought, oh, this, oh, right, oh, right. This is what happens when you are a parent and you go, I'll step in front of the bullet. <laughs> wow. And that's a real, that's genuine. Like, that's a real, you don't even think about that. Like, that's just that thing about being a parent and, and, and watching him become this extraordinary artist and this kind of really great human being that he's becoming, um, given where he came from, the complications of what he's come from, that's, I don't know if I feel proud of that because I don't think I did anything. It's not like, oh, good me, you know. It's like, <laughs> I think that's just something that is remarkable in my life. Right. Um, and, and certainly this work that we're doing right now at Musical Stage Company gives me enormous satisfaction, you right. know. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, and I'm certainly, I know everyone's grateful, including myself, that you came out to do this oh. in the summer over here in our, uh, at Vancouver and um, uh, be out here with us. Um, and so uh, we're opening on July 12th. This is 42nd Street at Theatre Under the Stars in Stanley Park. Um, come check us out all summer, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Robert, for your time. Thank you. Or should I really say great. Doug? <laughs> No. Doug McQueen. (laughs) Uh, Robert McQueen, thank you for doing it. Thank you.